Welcome to Northwest by Night, Tales of the West Coast. Coal mining, labor unrest, a fugitive on the run from the law, and a man left dead in the wilderness. Today on Northwest by Night, I'm going to talk a little bit about the life and death of Ginger Goodwin. At the start of the 20th century, few jobs were as gritty, dangerous, and miserable as coal mining. The conditions were deplorable, and while Vancouver Island's mines, from Ladysmith to Cumberland, were world-renowned for the fine quality of their coal, they were also known as brutal places to work. In September 1912, tensions between coal miners and management reached its breaking point. Canadian collieries officials claimed a miner had been fired for working unauthorized underground, but the union insisted that he'd actually been fired for reporting unsafe levels of explosive gas in the mines. So how did the powerless express their discontent to the powerful? The miners of Cumberland, B.C. declared a holiday, in air quotes, on September 15th. But the Canadian collieries needed to keep production moving. In 1900, 50% of the coal exported by Canada came from the mines on Vancouver Island, and the company was reluctant to lose even a single day's production. When men returned to work the next morning, they were told to take their tools and go home. If they wanted their jobs back, each miner would need to sign a contract to continue his old working conditions, dangerous, dirty, and unsafe, for the next two years. For 30 days, the white miners of Cumberland refused to sign the contracts, and in support, the Chinese miners didn't work either. Then on September 24th, a dozen provincial policemen arrived in Cumberland and promptly denied white miners access to Chinatown and the Japanese settlements. The next day, mine production began again, but this time with Chinese and Japanese labor, and rumors circulated that they'd been driven back to work with threats of deportation. The collieries soon shipped in men from Vancouver and Victoria to work as strike breakers, and many were eager for a job, unaware of the situation into which they'd been thrown. 120 provincial constables arrived in Cumberland with orders to keep the peace. In other words, keep the coal flowing out and the money flowing in. Just like the strike-breaking miners, many of these men were untrained and wore no uniforms, and they'd been sworn in specifically for this gritty fight. On September 28th, the holidaying miners were ordered to remove their belongings from their homes. Most of the buildings in Cumberland, including the miners' houses, were owned by the company, so some of the families moved to Comox Lake, where they hurriedly built cold, drafty cabins to shelter them from the worsening weather. Through the winter, miners and their families fought to survive the harsh conditions and no pay, and the unit of special constables remained in Cumberland to preserve the peace. But their presence only created more tension. By spring, there were continued skirmishes and tensions, and in the summer of 1913, it was full of violence with no relief in sight. But the Great War began in 1914, and that fueled the market for coal, and by extension a need for men to work the seams. Desperate to meet the growing demand for coal, the company consented to take the strikers back, but still refused to recognize the union. On May 10, 1887, in the little Yorkshire village of Treaton, Ginger Goodwin was born. He was the fourth child of Walter Goodwin, a coal miner, and Marianne Brown, and they named him Albert, 
but with his memorable shock of red hair, his friends and family all called him Ginger. At the age of 15, Goodwin began work at Yorkshire's Cadaby Colliery, but four years later he emigrated to Glace Bay, Nova Scotia. Here he worked for the Dominion Coal Company Limited, and between 1909 and 1910 he participated in the Great Strike. But this effort by the United Mine Workers of America to obtain union recognition was unsuccessful. When the strike was finished, Goodwin found himself blacklisted. Destitute and without hope of finding employment in the East, he headed west with a group of miners to British Columbia. In late 1910 or early 1911, Goodwin arrived in Cumberland to work for Canadian Collieries Limited as a mule driver and a miner. From contemporary accounts, he was a loyal friend, an avid fisherman, and well-liked by everyone. Goodwin attended dances, played on Cumberland's championship soccer team, and was an eloquent speaker. And if the rumors are true, he also had a bit of a reputation as a ladies' man. So when the strike of 1912 began, Ginger Goodwin saw miners and their families booted from their homes. And as the town divided between company profits and workers' rights, he was inspired to act. He became a delegate for the UMWA Cumberland Local to the District 28 Convention in 1913, a delegate to the British Columbia Federation of Labour Convention in 1914, and by early 1914 he accepted an appointment as an organiser for the Socialist Party of Canada. The colliery was not pleased. Because of his union involvement, Goodwin was not given his job back after the strike, and for a while he took employment building roads. In late 1915, he decided to leave Cumberland and moved to Coal Creek, where he became a pony driver in Number 1 East Mine of the Crow's Nest Past Coal Company. In 1916, he moved to Trail to work for the Consolidated Mining and Smelting Company as a smelterman, and while here, he ran as the Socialist Party's candidate in the provincial election. Goodwin came in third, but in December he was elected full-time secretary of the Trail Mill and Smelterman's Union, a local of the International Union of Mine, Mill, and Smelter Workers. Soon after, he became vice president of the BC Federation of Labour, president of IUMMSW's District 6, and president of the Trail Trades and Labour Council. He was congenial and dedicated, loyal and idealistic, eloquent and personable. Goodwin's union proposed that he take position as deputy minister of British Columbia's newly founded Department of Labour. However, while he had the support of the trades and labour councils of both Victoria and Vancouver, the government passed Goodwin over. British Columbia seemed far from the battlefields of France, but the ripple of war could be felt even here. After the Battle of the Somme in 1916, Canada desperately needed a new supply of soldiers to refresh their ranks, but very few volunteers stepped forward. Earlier efforts to recruit men from Quebec had met with resistance, and Canada turned to conscription. On August 29, 1917, the Military Service Act was passed. Joining the military became compulsory for all Canadian men between the ages of 20 and 35. This move was deeply unpopular in Canada, and Goodwin was a vocal, conscientious objector to the war. As a self-proclaimed pacifist, he believed that workers should not kill each other in economic struggles. In addition to his beliefs, years of working in mines had left him in ill health. Goodwin was chronically sick, with a rattling, tubercular cough, and his teeth were so rotten that he couldn't chew. Still, the law required that he register for conscription, so he did. When examined, he was classified as Category D, unfit for service. 
In November 1917, he led a union fight in Trail, B.C., rallying workers against conscription and demanding an eight-hour day. And only 11 days after the strike started, Goodwin received a telegram ordering him to report for a medical re-evaluation. This time, he was found to be fit for combatant service overseas, and despite two appeals, Goodwin was ordered to report for army service. Goodwin, along with several other draft dodgers, fled across the province back to Cumberland, to an isolated cabin in the wilderness above Comox Lake. Cumberland miners and families still distrusted the police who had helped to crush the Great Coal Strike, and as friends of Goodwin's, they offered to help. They smuggled supplies, first across the lake by boat and then hiked overland. Even the local constable, Robert Rushford, turned a blind eye to the aiding and abetting of the fugitive. When the provincial police searched the area, they met with resistance from everyone they met and found themselves unable to dig up any valuable leads. Empty-handed, they were forced to give up their search at the beginning of summer. But in early July, a small group of Dominion police arrived in Cumberland, headed by Inspector William DeWitt. Accompanying him were Constable George Rowe and Constable Dan Campbell. Campbell had once been a member of the BC Provincial Police. He was known as a crack shot and an avid outdoorsman, but he'd been fired from the force for extortion. However, with manpower shortages due to the war, the Dominion Police ignored his past and hired the riflemen for the pursuit of draft dodgers. On the morning of July 27th, the three officers headed to the northern shores of Comox Lake, guided by Thomas Anderson and George Janes. The terrain was harsh and unforgiving, with steep canyons plunging down into wild river valleys. When the search party reached a lone mountain at the farthest end of the lake, the two guides left, and DeWitt, Rowe, and Campbell headed into the woods. Their orders had been clear, arrest the military defaulters. DeWitt and Rowe took one trail, and Campbell took another. For the whole day, they searched for signs of the draft dodgers, through the canyons and hemlock groves, over rugged trails and rocky outcroppings. The July sun was merciless, and on the slopes of the mountain, the trees gave only a little shade. DeWitt and Rowe found no trace of the men, but at 4.30pm they heard a shot ring out, echoing along the cliffs. When they scurried down from the mountain slopes into the Crookshank Canyon, they found Campbell standing alongside Goodwin's lifeless body. Campbell claimed that Goodwin had pointed a rifle at him. He insisted that the shooting had been in self-defense. With Goodwin dead, the Dominion police called off their search for the other draft dodgers. DeWitt ordered Campbell to return to Cumberland and surrender to the provincial police. Soon after, undertakers in Cumberland were ordered to bury the body where it had been shot, up in the woods and far from civilization. The request was a strange one, and when the undertakers refused to follow their orders, Ginger Goodwin's body lay in the bushes for four days. Eventually, his friends hiked up to a lone mountain to retrieve his corpse. Suspicion soon rose of a conspiracy and cover-up. After all, Goodwin had been a pacifist and in poor health, and hardly the kind of man to hunt down and attack an officer like Campbell. Evidence was mishandled. The search for the other draft dodgers was halted abruptly, and on the same day that Goodwin's body was carried out of the woods, 
amnesty was given to all conscientious objectors. Even more questionable, after Goodwin's body was removed, police set fire to the spot where he had been shot, and in the sweltering summer conditions, the whole area burned to ash. Those who collected Goodwin's body and carried it down from the wilderness on a stretcher claimed that Campbell's soft-nosed bullet had struck Goodwin in the back of the neck. The wounds were those of a man turning away from his assailant. They were certain that Goodwin had been ambushed and murdered. On August 2nd, Ginger Goodwin was buried at the Cumberland Cemetery. Miners, friends, and comrades carried his coffin on their shoulders through the streets of Cumberland, and hundreds of mourners lined Dunsmuir Avenue as they passed on their way to the graveyard. His funeral procession stretched for four miles. That same day, the Trades and Labor Council called all union members to protest, quote, the shooting of Brother A. Goodwin, unquote. In reply, the majority of Vancouver's workers laid aside their tools for 24 hours, the first general strike in the history of British Columbia. By the end of the summer of 1918, a coroner's jury declared that Goodwin's death had been justifiable homicide, and Campbell was charged with manslaughter. This, of course, didn't meet with much approval in the close-knit coal mining communities of Vancouver Island. Afraid of rising resentment and anger, and at the request of the defense, the trial was moved from Nanaimo to the city of Victoria. In October, the grand jury of the Victoria Fall Assizes held a closed session. There would be no records kept of their proceedings, and after listening to witness testimony, they refused to commit Campbell for trial. With their ruling, the constable was cleared of any guilt. So was Ginger Goodwin a dangerous, subversive, and lawbreaker, or a hero of the working class fighting for better labor conditions? Was Campbell justified to shoot in self-defense, or was Goodwin an unwitting victim of a government that wanted to be rid of him? What really happened at the base of Alone Mountain in Mr. Goodwin's final hours? Thanks for listening to today's episode. I'm Kim Bannerman, and that's sound producer Sean Piggott, and Northwest by Night is a production of Fox & Bee Studio. We're closing out this episode with Sean's song, Monterey. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you again next week.